in metabolic health, it's, it's really like the root pretty much of everything, whether we're dealing with like the brain, the body joints, whatever. Um, I saw an interesting statistic recently, I think it was in a paper published last week. And I know you cited a similar statistic in your book that said, you know, there's kind of this floats around on Twitter as well, but like 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. So, you know, that gives us 88% of the population is metabolically unhealthy. I read a paper that was just published. It would suggest that based on kind of like a similar, you know, data set, it was like only 6.8% or something like that. Do you, do you find those numbers believable kind of based on what you see in front of your own eyes? Based on the criteria that they use, I can find it reasonable. I have done fairly extensive lab testing on many patients. Um, and that was with routine metabolic risk factors. So cholesterol, LDL, ApoB, creatinine, et cetera. Um, but when you start to test lactate to really dive into their aerobic health, you have people with a resting blood, blood lactate of two or 1.8. Or if they walk in the hall twice, 2.2, 2.5. So that became very alarming. Even with thin, even in thin people who did not have metabolic syndrome. And so can you just maybe provide a little bit of context for people who are listening? So if someone has that elevated blood lactate around 2.0 at rest, what is that kind of indicative of? Or what is that like signaling? Why is having that resting blood lactate at that level um, so sort of concerning? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> when we talk about metabolic health uh, and we draw the associations between dementia, heart disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and we talk about there being a root cause, the root cause really is mitochondrial dysfunction. So our mitochondria relies on multiple energy systems. Our cells rely on multiple energy systems to, to create ATP to power our bodies. The mitochondria prefer to burn fat via fat oxidation. It's much more efficient, and we have an endless supply of energy. Once we start to exert ourselves, if you're a fit individual, uh, you start to burn glucose through glycolysis in the cytoplasm uh, around the mitochondria. People who are fit have a resting blood lactate around 0.7 to 1. So we're always burning some glucose in our body, no matter how low-carb your diet is. And, that might upset uh, some people who think there are just fat burners, right? They're not glucose correct. burners. <laughs> when you, if you are in glycolysis, one of the end products of that is pyruvate, which gets, which gets converted to lactate. So as, as glycolysis goes and your effort goes, your blood lactate is going to rise because we can't clear that lactate. Um, and so if you have a resting lactate level of two, then you are producing as much lactate as you or I as runners will produce running for you a seven minute mile and for me a nine minute mile. So these people are at rest sitting on an examining room table with an elevated blood lactate, meaning that their mitochondria are not functioning well. They're not oxidizing fat. They have a process known as poor mitochondrial flexibility. Mitochondrial flexibility is the ability of the mitochondria to switch to fat oxidation to provide efficient and abundant energy versus 
glycolysis. Yeah, and so, I mean, that's not typically probably used as one of those indicators in like the studies that we were talking about of metabolic health, but is that, you know, something, is that a standard measurement that you will do on somebody who comes into your clinic or comes to see you? So, no. Um, okay. I, 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 if people are, are interested, I will dot, dive into it for them. Yeah. Yeah. And so when those people, if they get on a treadmill and even say start walking at a, like a very slow pace or maybe even like a brisk walk, like I'm assuming that their lactate just kind of continues to, to go up and up and up and they probably have very poor exercise tolerance as well. Absolutely. Their lactate will just increase precipitously. Um, and Gerald Schulman, not, not Gerald Schulman, George Brooks uh, and uh, Inizio Samalan had published that paper where we saw the charts of blood lactate um, versus the energy expenditure. And it was just remarkable of yeah, some people with metabolic syndrome immediately into glycolysis as soon as they move. Yeah, that's, that's kind of, yeah, very, definitely very concerning and sort of, you know, points to the fact that, I mean, really the mitochondria, again, going back to metabolic health, mitochondria, sort of the focus of everything. Um, so I kind of wanted to begin to talk about this whole now focus that you have started, uh, that being sort of longevity and health span. And so before we dive into maybe ways that people can enhance their health span or enhance their longevity, I think it'd be great to just define those terms because, we hear them a lot, but it's, you know, not necessarily uh, maybe well-defined. So can you differentiate when you say lifespan or longevity and then compare that to when we hear the term health span and then sure. maybe and in your terms, what might be more important from, from your focus or what you're more focused on? Right. So personally, I optimize for health span. Um, lifespan is obviously how long you're going to live. Um, but we want quality in those years. We want to be walking upright. We don't want to be hunched over. We don't want to be going to a physician's office every other week and on 10 medications and after our third cardiac by bypass. Um, and that's the concept of health span. We, we're squaring off the lifespan curve. We're not deteriorating slowly from the 50s on. We're maintaining our health until the very end when we will deteriorate ra rapidly. Um, and health span is, is qu quite arguably much more important and pertinent to the topic of, long of longevity and healthy aging. Yeah, much more important because, you know, as many people say, you know, what's what's the point of living long if, say, you live to be 100, but from 70 to 100, it was, you know, riddled with sort of disease, you're on a ventilator, sitting in a bed for 30 years, you know, you have a very poor quality of life during those last, maybe not 30, but, you know, say 10 to 15 years are kind of like disease ridden. So it's like this concept of um, like compressed morbidity, where basically, you know, maybe you get to 90 years old, and then you just die in your sleep. And that's like the ideal situation, I think, for, for a lot of people. Um, yeah, for, well, centenarians yeah. die of the same diseases, you know, mm -hmm. as those who are 30 years younger, but they just do it at the end of uh, quite a youthful life. Um, cognitively intact, strong, walking and hanging out with their family until, until the very end, and they just don't don't wake up the next day. Yeah, which is, you know, very interesting, but it, I mean, it makes 
sense because you hear, you know, nobody just dies of like old age. You got to die of something, you know, it's not just like your clock literally runs out and you're okay, you're, you know, time for you to go. So it's important, I think, to note that they die of the same diseases, but they seem to be pushing them about 10 to 15 years, kind of like in the future compared to most people. Correct. Yes. And so, you know, the people who are living to be 100, I know there have been some studies on centenarians and people who are living to be 100 or even, you know, 105, 110 years old. Are there any kind of like, are there a few qualities that they have that make them different besides the obvious one being like exceptional genes, you know, choose your parents wisely is kind of the main thing <laughs> to get to 100. But are there any things that you've learned kind of doing research into longevity that these people are doing differently? Um, anything kind of exceptional? Yes, it's funny. A lot of a lot of attention uh, is paid to the Mediterranean diet um, as being a uh, life-enhancing diet. But what's more important when these uh, blue zone uh, folks is their lifestyle, right? If you've been to if you've been to Italy, um, these people have a lower stress life. They have a lot of family. They're always eating in groups. They're always out walking and taking strolls. Um, they remain active uh, well into their eighth and ninth decades and, and beyond. Um, it's a much more, much more social lifestyle. They have a reason to wake up. Uh, they have uh, you know, a goal. It, it's just, it's the entire lifestyle. It's not just the Mediterranean diet that's going to bring on these changes. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point because the diet had been given so much. I mean, even in the past few decades, like the Mediterranean diet is like huge. And overall, I mean, obviously diet and diet and nutrition are important, but who knows how much that's contributing versus all those other things you said. Um, I found I, the funny, a funny part of your book I remember reading was that you said they these centenarian people don't have Pelotons or anything like that. You know, they're just walking and gardening and things like that. So unfortunately, you know, Peloton might not get me to 100, but. <laughs> I can hope, right? Um, but yeah, so it, it is interesting in studying the blue zones, a lot has been done on them and their habits. I think the stress reduction and things like that just have a lot to do with it and just having the sense of purpose, but also kind of just living these very, e not easy lives, but you know, very kind of like stress-free lives that are much different than those in Western societies, like the ones that, that we live in. Um, so longevity science and, you know, if, if listeners have, been on Twitter and they follow you or they are kind of in this space and not just on Twitter, but social media, the general media, um, the longevity science can get pretty convoluted, pretty riddled with a lot of not maybe misinformation, but a lot of hype. You know, there's a lot of hype out there surrounding longevity. Um, and really, and we're going to get into your book soon about how simple strategies can really have more of an effect on longevity. Um, what do you think, you know, if you had to pick out some of your main beefs or concerns with longevity science or people in the longevity space right now, are there any that kind of stand out? Um, a quote that stood out to me in your book, you say that no single action, medication, diet, or supplement will extend your life. And that was, you know, definitely uh, true, important to note. No single one will, maybe a combination of all these kind of things can. But um, so back to my question, I guess, you know, what, what are some of the main bad aspects of longevity science that you wish would go away? <laughs> the issues that I have with uh, some in the longevity crowd is their focus on single solitary issues. So you have to try this diet and you're going to live longer and feel better. You have to try this medication 
this supplement um, or you just have to sleep and wear an aura ring and you're going to live longer. There's no one simple answer to this. You know, I, I don't care how many supplements you take. If you're not sleeping well, if you're not walking, uh, if you're not exercising, you're not doing your resistance training, um, you're not going to get all the longevity results that you seek. It's just, there's not, there's not going to be a single pill answer to this for now. Yeah. yeah, for now, for now. But there definitely also seems to be this sort of um, myopic focus on like certain, if you get down to like the real science, like these specific pathways or like longevity genes that people are right. claiming. It's like, oh, this one gene, you know, if we can upregulate this gene, it's going to enhance lifespan. Or if we can, you know, inhibit this gene, that could increase lifespan. And so that kind of leads to the focus on these supplements that target these very specific pathways. Like we're going to inhibit mTOR or we're going to activate AMPK. And it's like, if we're just going to focus on inhibiting mTOR and thinking that's going to extend life, you know, maybe it does in a, uh, a fruit fly or a yeast, but sure. we are neither fruit flies, you know, nor yeast. So that seems to be, you know, one of the main problems as well. It's like, M you see mTOR, mTOR, we need to stop mTOR, but then people want to eat a lot of protein, which, you know, that stimulates mTOR. So right. you can't have your cake and eat it too, but, um, you know, you that, don't want to lose muscle. You don't want to lose muscle mass. Um, I remember when that low protein data came out and I know some very well-educated people who followed it and cut down the protein uh, and they lost strength, they lost muscle mass and they're around my age. So they have sarcopenia and a lot of it was self-induced and that's a big issue. Um, but you bring up this, this, this brought up a great point. Um, there is no, you know, I don't care if you take NAD or just rapamycin, as I say in the book, and I say often, you cannot outrun a bad diet. You cannot outrun a lack of sleep. Um, you need to have a reason to wake up. You need to have something that grabs you in the morning, wakes your head up and say, okay, I can't wait to do this. I can't wait to see this person, hang out with these people. It's much more complicated, yet it's much more simple. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of you know, the people who are interested in either whether it's like the supplement or that could, you know, specifically target whatever aspect of longevity, it almost looks like they're looking for like a cheat code. It's, oh, I, you know, I don't have to exercise, but I can, you know, fast or take this supplement and that will kind of, you know, allow me to not exercise and like get away with it. But like you said, I don't really, you know, think that's the case. So, you know, you can't out supplement a bad diet or outrun a bad diet, despite, you know, some people might and try. anything we do needs to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. I, you know, have I tried fasting? Sure. Do I love the mental clarity at around day three? Sure. Do I enjoy the refeeding issues? No. Do I enjoy, do I enjoy losing weight? No. You know, I'm one of those people who I'm fortunate. I have trouble gaining weight and, you know, I have to keep my weight on as Alan uh, and a bunch of others on Twitter discuss all the time. We have to feed our burn, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not in the mood to lose muscle mass, lean, lean, use lean, lose lean mass. Um, I'm not going to put myself at risk. And that's why I stick with these simple strategies. No, certainly. And I would love to, you know, get into talking about some of those simple strategies, which are um, all present kind of in your new book. So longevity, 
Simplified is the name of the new book. Um, I've been reading it over the past few weeks, and it seems to be getting a lot of um, attention and a lot of positive reviews on social media, which is good to see. Um, so you have a lot of kind of actionable strategies. You present these sort of at the end and beginning of like each chapter that are sort of all rooted around this concept of improving metabolic health. Some of them like socializing and sense of purpose, maybe not as much. Um, but, you know, you talk about things like staying lean or at least staying at, you know, a, a lower body weight and having a caloric deficit, uh, getting enough sleep, eating real food, moving throughout the day, pushing and pulling heavy things. Very simple, you know, strategies. And then kind of breaking those down into what each of those means is, you know, different types of exercise, different types of nutritional interventions. Um, the first thing I would like to talk about is cognitive health and cognitive decline because our, you know the main what we might talk about today is probably mostly going to be you know muscle metabolic health cardiovascular fitness related but the brain almost sometimes among maybe people who are more metabolically focused seems to kind of be neglected which is unfortunate because the brain is a metabolic organ as well i know they're calling like alzheimer's like type 3 diabetes now and you know so a lot of insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction also sort of manifest in the brain just as they do in the body. Um, so can you talk a little bit about some of the main diseases that affect the brain um, with aging and kind of how prevalent these are, if they're preventable and uh, things like that? Sure. So it's estimated that 40% uh, or more cases of adult onset dementia are preventable. As you mentioned, it, it is referenced as type 3 diabetes. It is a vascular issue. It is a metabolic health issue and an insulin-resistant issue. Um, and we have trouble getting, getting our mitochondria uh, to, to produce enough energy. Um, maintain cognition is so important. It, it doesn't matter if I have a ton of muscles but forgot where I put my weights. Um, it's not going to help me yeah. out very much. Um, and yeah, yeah, I've seen the, the downsides of dementia far too often and in folks as young as 60, 65, 70, and these are not a APOE cases. Um, and so, I, you know, Gerald Schulman has found evidence of insulin resistance in thin yet inactive college students at Yale University. Imagine if they're insulin resistant at 18, 19, and 20, what their brain is going to look like by the time they're 40. This is a wake-up call. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, pair the insulin resistance with, you know, typically a lot of alcohol consumption, which comes during college, and you kind of have a recipe for disaster for, for the brain when it's supposed to be in its formative years, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, forty—the fact that forty percent of it seems to be preventable—is, I guess, a positive thing. Um, is there any data on like when you know cognitive decline can start to occur? Because I know dementia and Alzheimer's are sort of diagnosable diseases, but then you have this like lesser form of mild cognitive impairment. I mean, can these, like, I guess people can obviously be metabolically unhealthy at younger ages, but when typically is like the age of maybe when these things might to start or manifest? Well, by the time you get to my age, you're going to start to forget things, right? It's going to be harder to recall names where you left something, uh, something that you wanted to do. Is that, co is that, co is that cognitive decline, perhaps? Um, is it dementia? You know, um, when does it reach the threshold of being, being called dementia? I honestly don't know. 
Um, I like to fall back on the fact that I am just an orthopedic surgeon, so I'm not held to that level of sophistication. Um, yeah. Yeah, what, um, I guess, what is dementia? Can we just define that really quickly? Is there, you know, what's like the clinical definition of it or what are some of like the main symptoms of, of dementia? Well, 